I am going to make everything around me beautiful. That will be my life. These are the words of Elsie Dolf. I remember the moment I came across these words, adorning a friend's wall in a decorative frame. If you didn't already know, cleaning houses has been a significant part of my life, a labor of joy and love for nurturing and serving. I've loved to clean since I can remember, even as a kid. Hence, where beautiful gray sponge grew out of. While I might pride myself in creating beautiful spaces by my cleaning, Elsie's way was in decorating. According to The New Yorker, and I'm jumping right into it, interior design as a profession was invented by Elsie DeWolf. Born Ella Anderson DeWolf, December 20th, 1865, in New York City, Elsie was the only daughter, the second of five children, to Stephen DeWolf and Georgina Copeland DeWolf. Both parents came from some amount of wealth, although her physician father was apparently an erratic spender and didn't manage money well. She was privileged with a private education and even spent some of her childhood in Europe with relatives of higher status. She lived for a few years, in her teenage years, with maternal relatives in Edinburgh, Scotland. Through that connection, she was presented at Queen Victoria's court in 1883 and to London's high society. She also visited her father's French-style ancestral home in Wolfville, Nova Scotia in her youth. All this to say that these experiences abroad introduced her to 19th century design and would influence her preferred sense of style, which we shall see, was largely akin to that of 18th century French art. Indeed, her sensitivity to style and color was intense, even as a child. Apparently, when arriving home from school one day, she found her parents had redecorated. The walls were designed in gray palm leaves and splotches of bright red and green on a background of dull tan. She described her reaction in her autobiography as if, Something terrible cut like a knife inside her. She threw herself on the floor, kicking with stiffened legs, literally beating her hands on the carpet, crying out over and over, It's so ugly! It's so ugly! <laughs> I laugh. It's true. Perhaps, Sadly, the same acute sensitivity to aesthetics negatively affected her own sense of self. She described herself as an ugly child who lived in an ugly age. And yet, her love for decor would lead to a very fulfilling and colorful life and inspire future interior designers, as well as many other artists today, even housekeepers like myself. Before she began as an interior designer, in 1884, she began her career as an actress. Yes, an actress, devoted to amateur theater, a popular form of charitable fundraising at the time. Shortly after, in 1890, the death of her father left the family in somewhat financial straits, and so she turned to the professional stage. She was assisted in entering the field by her close friend, whom we'll hear more about in a moment, Elizabeth Marbury, a theatrical agent. 
While she was neither good or bad in her acting, most critics focused more on her elaborate attire than anything. She dressed beautifully. She discovered she really enjoyed designing the stage. She impressed her audiences with her stage sets, sense of fashion, eye for color, and ability to create a harmonious environment. Later, she would leave the theater to pursue the emerging field of decor. She even continued to act into her early 40s and had her own theatrical company. Along by her side was her friend Elizabeth, or Bessie, as I mentioned earlier. Bessie was a formidable figure in New York City, the daughter of a prosperous lawyer. Like DeWolf, Marbury happened to be a pioneer career woman. As an incredibly successful literary agent and business representative, Bessie was one of the first female theater agents and one of the first woman Broadway producers. Her clients included major British playwrights such as Oscar Wilde and George Bernard Shaw. The two women, as early as 1887, had settled into what was then called a Boston marriage. Historically, the term Boston marriage refers to the cohabitation of two wealthy women independent of financial support from a man. This was a common occurrence in New England during the late 19th, early 20th centuries. Some of these relationships were romantic in nature. Others were not. The pair formed the center of a group of unmarried society women that also included Anne Morgan, the daughter of J.P. Morgan, and Anne Vanderbilt. During their nearly 40 years together, until Bessie's death in 1933, gossips called them the Bachelors. However, Elsie did in fact marry, but we'll set that aside for another moment. It was really design that was DeWolf's greatest love. She had even said, quote, Probably when another woman would be dreaming of love affairs, I dream of the delightful houses I've lived in. I think that's why some people like my rooms. They feel, without quite knowing why, that I have loved them while making them. Let's summarize her design style now, and then we'll delve into her undeniable success. What I came across more than anything was how anti-Victorian she was. She really dethroned the fringe and tassel of that eclectic and highly ornamental era. It wasn't that she didn't embrace antique pieces. She absolutely did, and believed antiques were adaptive, and she had no use for modernism. But uncluttered, she covered dark wood with white paint, removed heavy drapes to let in the sun, and covered furniture in chintz. Don't worry, I looked it up glazed and shiny printed cotton fabric. She liked light hues and bright colors as well as simplicity. She preferred easily maintainable surfaces, albeit I don't think her inclusion of wicker chairs and trellised rooms like an indoor garden pavilion quite fit that kind of easy to clean surface. I speak from experience. But altogether, she aimed for visual unity. One observer described Wolf's style as, quote, a model of simplicity in gold and white. She herself had said, quote, I believe in plenty of optimism in white paint, comfortable chairs with lights beside them, open fires on the hearth, and flowers wherever they belong. 
mirrors and sunshine in all rooms, end quote. For her decor was a sign of character, morale. You are where you live. Indeed, she'd said, quote, you will express yourself in your home whether you want to or not, end quote. Is that true for you, dear listener? With her incredible talent and taste, DeWolf would design interiors for many prestigious private homes, clubs, and businesses on both the East and West Coasts, even throughout Europe. It all began in 1905. A group of powerful New York women, Bessie being one of them, organized the city's first club exclusively for women, the Colony Club. Its headquarters at Madison and 31st Street in New York were designed by Stanford White, who, along with Marbury and other friends on the board, got DeWolf the commission to do the decoration. Instead of imitating the heavy atmosphere of men's clubs, DeWolf introduced a casual, more feminine style. When the colony opened in 1907, the interiors established her reputation overnight. But the highlight of her career both professionally and financially, came just before the war, the First Great War, when Henry Clay Frick, a wealthy steel industrialist, hired her to decorate the private rooms in the new mansion he was building at the New York corner of Fifth Avenue and 70th Street. In Paris, she guided Frick on a tour of a legendary art collection that had belonged to Sir Richard Wallace, advising on purchases for Frick's future museum. In a single extraordinary morning, Frick spent between $1 million and $3 million on paintings, sculptures, tapestries, furnishings, and other objects of art. DeWolf's commission of 10% gave her one of the highest incomes that year in America. In perspective, if he'd only spent $1 million in the 20th century, Today, that would amount to over $33 million. Whoa. Along with the Women's Club and Frick's estate, in 1903, the opportunity arose to purchase the graceful Villa Trianon in Versailles. Yes, France. An 18th century mansion that had been built by Louis XV as a retreat from the main palace. She and Bessie spent most of their time there until the approach of World War I. Although Bessie returned to the States, DeWolf was determined to stay, and this is where she helped support the war efforts. She offered the Villa Trianon her sacred estate to the Red Cross for use as a hospital and volunteered as a nurse in a burn unit, for which she received a high honor from the French. Another interesting fact about her French estate is the dog cemetery. Yes, DeWolf loved her little dogs. Here she had tombstones for each, which all read, the one I loved the best. <laughs> After the First World War, DeWolf married while still in Europe. I mentioned that earlier. In 1926, she married the diplomat and actor Sir Charles Mendel, the British press attaché in Paris. I think I said that right. She was in her 60s when she orchestrated this marriage of convenience, 
a mutual arrangement, actually. The marriage made page one news in the New York Times, which reported, quote, The intended marriage comes as a great surprise to our friends. End quote. The platonic marriage of convenience allowed her to use the title Lady. De Wolf, De Wolf, paid Mendel a monthly allowance, and the two entertained together but kept separate residences. Before the start of the Second World War, she was known for her lavish parties. This is very interesting. Quote, she mixes people like a cocktail, and the result is sheer genius, said a party-goer. One of the last parties held at the villa, two months before Britain and France declared war on Germany, she had left-wing, right-wing, exiled royals, Hollywood stars, alongside German ambassadors and future Vichy collaborationists, the Rothschild heirs, and masses of American expats. They drank pink lady cocktails, Elsie's recipe, until dawn. Wow. How unlikely. In 1941, though, Elsie, already in her 80s, and her husband were forced to leave when the Nazis stormed Paris, and the villa was occupied by Germans during the war. Wanting to be with the royalty of America, the movie stars, Elsie and Sir Charles purchased a home in Beverly Hills and named it After All, just as her previously published autobiography from 1935. She was focused on entertaining, yes. Although there were examples of how clearly out of touch she was with world events and politics, apparently there's even a photo of her displaying the infamous fascist salute, DeWolf did possess something resembling a social conscience. She was an early supporter of the women's suffrage movement, marching up Fifth Avenue in the Great Parade of 1912. Perhaps, in her design style, that's why she felt that the home should reflect the woman's personality, not the husband's earning power. Elsie returned to the French villa in the late 1940s and, in her final years, revived some of the glory that marked the years between the wars. I'd like to share some additional flair regarding the remarkable woman that highlights her personality even more so, and outside her creative work. Of decor. For instance, her morning exercises were famous. In her memoir, DeWolf wrote that her daily regime at age 70 include yoga, standing on her head, and walking on her hands. Quote, I have a regular exercise routine founded on the yogi method, Elsie said, introduced to me by Anne Vanderbilt and her daughter, Princess Marat. I stand on my head and I can do cartwheels, or I walk upside down on my hands. End quote. She was probably the first woman to dye her hair blue and perform handstands to impress her friends. In her later years, a faithful student of nutrition, DeWolf embraced a vegetarian diet. She also became, in 1908, one of the first women to fly when she went up with Wilbur Wright in France. She influenced notable people, including... Cole Porter. In Porter's Anything Goes, a song about modern scandals, he sings, 
When you hear that Lady Mendel standing up, now does a handspring landing up on her toes. Anything goes. <laughs> Something like that. Her influence extended to the general public as well. She passed along advice to millions through her articles, interviews, lecture tours, and pamphlets. The wolf died in Versailles at the Villa Trianon on July 12th. 1950, attended only by her maid. Cremated, her ashes were placed in a common grave at Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris. When she died, the villa was shuttered up and left in darkness for three decades. In the 1980s, every last treasure inside was auctioned off. There were no efforts to preserve the home intact, and never again would it be the stage of Parisian high society. In 1999, a devastating storm hit Versailles and destroyed many buildings, including the iconic chateau. It became a ruin. Ruins inform and often inspire us in all their brilliance and decay, poetic and imperfect. How do you connect with the past? and the lives of others. What brings you to inquire and learn about someone historically? I want to thank listeners for your time and attention. Thank you for liking, reviewing, and sharing this podcast. I'd like to send a special shout out to Mike, a listener who recently contributed so generously to the production of Beautiful Gray Sponge with his donation. If you'd like to similarly support me in this heart-centered work, you can learn more by visiting my personal page at L-M, as in May, Trostel, T-R-O-S-T-L-E dot com. Whether you listen regularly or this is your first time, I appreciate you for remaining curious and connecting. Until the next beautiful Gray Sponge episode, where we explore the lives of magnificent minds, thank you for tuning your sponge in, and thank you for listening. Times have changed, and we've often rewound the clock since the Puritans got the shock when they landed on Plymouth Rock. If today any shock they should try to stem Instead of landing on Plymouth Rock Plymouth Rock would land on them In olden days A glimpse of stocking was looked on to something shocking But now God knows Anything goes Good offers too who once knew better words Now only use for letter words Writing prose Anything goes If driving fast cars you like If low bars you like If old hymns you like If bare limbs you like If May West you like Or me unrest you like Why nobody will oppose When every night The sense and smart is intruding And new part is in studio Anything goes When Mrs. Ned McLean God bless her can get Russian red to yes sir Then I suppose 
anything goes. When Rockefeller still can hoard enough money to let Matt Gordon produce his show, anything goes. The world has gone mad today, and good's bad today, and black's white today, and day's night today, and that gent today you gave a cent today wants that several chateau. When folks who still can ride in jitneys find out Vanderbilt's and Whitney's lack baby clothes, anything goes. When Sam Goldwyn can with great conviction instruct Anna stand in diction, then Anna shows, anything goes. When you hear that Lady Mendel standing up now does a handspring landing up on her toes. Anything goes. Just think of those shocks you got and those knocks you got and those blues you got from those news you got and those pains you got if any brains you got from those little radios. So Mrs. R with all her trim and can broadcast the bed from Simmons cause Franklin knows. 